Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Kareen, and we are two Octops. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on some of the most testable thrombophilia syndromes, also known as the hypercoagulable workup. We're going to go over antiphospholipid syndrome, antithrombin 3 deficiency, protein C, protein S deficiency, as well as factor V Leiden. We'll go over all the important details on a little bit of the presentation, which you guys know is clotting, as well as the testing and treatment of these conditions. Absolutely. This is something that comes up again and again, both on internal medicine, as well as hematology consults, as well as in clinic. And so before we go into details on each hypercoagulable condition, what are some general facts that we should be aware of? Great. So one thing to think about is that venous thrombus occurs mostly due to the activation of the coagulation system in the plasma. This is different than arterial thrombosis, which is largely due to platelet activation in the arteries. One pearl to think about before we send off the hypercoagulable disorder workup is take a step back and ask yourself, will these tests change my management? This is one big thing that I was taught during my fellowship, because if a patient has already bought the ticket for lifelong anticoagulation, will this workup even change anything? So ask yourself those questions before you send off these tests. The strongest risk for thrombosis is with antiphospholipid syndrome, antithrombin-3 deficiency, protein C, and protein S deficiency. Don't forget about MPNs and PNH, which also can cause thrombosis, and we covered these on prior episodes. The testing for thrombophilia can be performed when a patient has a thromboembolic event without a cause. So this is what we call the unprovoked clots. The tests need to be done prior to the starting of anticoagulation, and in general, these tests need to be repeated some weeks later to confirm these diagnoses. I'm going to talk a lot about that as we go through them. Be aware that protein C, S, and antithrombin-3 decrease naturally in the setting of acute thrombus, so do not check these during that acute clotting setting. Protein C and protein S are reduced with warfarin, Antithrombin-3 levels decrease with the use of unfractionated heparin, and protein C, S, and antithrombin-3 are artificially elevated with the presence of DOAX, more of the reason why we don't send these tests if someone's on anticoagulation. Yes, this is really important to know. So make sure that when you're sending for these tests, you know these subtleties about when to check them and how to interpret the results. And so let's first talk about antiphospholipid syndrome. What are the tests for diagnosis and the treatment? With antiphospholipid syndrome, it's associated with both venous and arterial clotting, as well as early pregnancy loss. Testing can include dilute Russell's Viper Venom Time, DRVVT, which will be elevated, as well as the PTT. They can give that to you in the vignette. The lupus anticoagulant will be positive, as well as the other antiphospholipid antibodies, which includes anticardiolipin antibody and anti-beta-2 GPI. One test a pearl is that antiphospholipid syndrome will have that elevated PTT, and this is due to the antibodies causing prolongation of the phospholipid-dependent coagulation assays, such as PTT. The antiphospholipid antibodies should be checked before anticoagulation and repeated again three months later to assess whether they persist. Antiphospholipid antibody titers may be low in the setting of acute clotting, and barely above normal results are really not considered significant. Yeah, it's really important to know that you have to check them twice 
three months apart. And that is not just the lupus anticoagulant, but there's also the other antibodies that need to be checked as part of the panel for the diagnostic criteria. And so what is the diagnostic criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome? So for antiphospholipid syndrome, the diagnosis is based off the Sapero criteria. The two clinical criteria include having a clot as well as early pregnancy loss defined as at least three in the first trimester or one after 10 weeks. The laboratory criteria includes persistent laboratory evidence of antiphospholipid antibodies tested at least 12 weeks apart from each other. These antibodies are the IgG or IgM of anti-beta-2 glycoprotein. The result needs to be in the greater than 99th percentile, anti-cardiolipin antibody, which again has to be in the greater than the 99th percentile, as well as the lupus anticoagulant. One pearl is the lupus anticoagulant has more risk for thrombosis than anticardiolipin. And another pearl is that testing may be falsely positive on anticoagulation, including DOAX. Treatment for antiphospholipid syndrome is warfarin with a goal INR of between two to three. We also need to be aware the INR may be inaccurate, and we need to monitor for levels of the chromogenic factor X to get the most reliable therapeutic levels. There has been higher incidence of clotting recurrence seen on the DOAX, so this is one of those times where we don't use a DOAC. Absolutely, and we'll talk in a minute about how to treat antiphospholipid syndrome in a pregnant woman. And so next, tell me about antithrombin-3 deficiency. How does antithrombin work and how do we test for the deficiency? Antithrombin-3 works by inhibiting thrombin from converting fibrinogen to fibrin. The antithrombin-3 assay measures the ability of the patient's antithrombin to neutralize thrombin. Deficiencies are mostly heterozygous as homozygous is incompatible with life. Testing needs to be done at least three weeks after the acute clotting episode and repeated if low levels are identified to confirm the diagnosis. Be aware that unfractionated heparin can lower the levels of antithrombin-3, and patients with antithrombin-3 deficiency will then require higher doses of the unfractionated heparin to actually be in therapeutic ranges. DOAX will falsely elevate the level of antithrombin-3, If there's an asymptomatic heterozygous patient, there is no need for prophylactic anticoagulation. But if a patient has an unprovoked DVT with that heterozygosity of the antithrombin-3 deficiency, they bought the ticket for long-term anticoagulation. Yes, remember that DOAX can falsely elevate the activity. And so next, we're going to talk about protein C and S. Can you first tell me about protein C deficiency? This is a vitamin K protein, and they're natural anticoagulants used by inactivating factor 5 and factor 8. Testing includes protein C assay, which uses snake venom to activate protein C and prolongs the PTT. We should always be testing to look at both the activity as well as the antigen levels. To know the general cutoff of what is clinically significant, you need to know that the protein C activity being less than 20 is when we start to think about deficiency. So again, this is not a subtle, just below normal, but this is truly less than 20. Again, be aware that levels will be low in the acute clotting setting 
setting or if the patient's on warfarin, they need to be off of warfarin for at least three weeks before you can get a reliable test, and the DOAX may falsely elevate the levels. One testable pearl is that if you're using warfarin as the anticoagulant of choice, you need to bridge these patients with heparin for five days as warfarin will continue to lower the protein C, which can worsen the thrombosis. Yes, it's important to know what levels are clinically relevant. And so next, tell me about protein S deficiency. Similar to protein C, this also is a vitamin K-dependent protein. It's also a natural anticoagulant. It's a cofactor to protein C. Over half of protein S is actually bound to something called transport protein C4B. Testing for protein S will include both looking for the antigen and the activity levels. Again, if levels are low, they could be low naturally due to the acute clotting or if the patient's on warfarin, and the patient has to be off of warfarin for at least three weeks to get a reliable number. DOACs also falsely elevate the protein S levels. And the testable pearl, again, if you're using warfarin as the anticoagulant of choice, you have to bridge them with that heparin to prevent the worsening of thrombosis. Yes. Make sure that you always check both the antigen and the activity. I feel like we often would get consults for low levels, but make sure that it's in the clinically significant range and that you're checking the antigen and the activity. And so next, can you tell me about acquired causes of antithrombin-3 protein C and protein S deficiencies? Yes, there are. And some of the more testable causes include liver disease, which can lead to deficiencies in protein C, S, as well as antithrombin-3. Warfarin, like we talked about, lowers protein C and S. Estrogens in pregnancy lower protein S. Inflammatory disease lowers protein S. And heparin lowers antithrombin 3. Along the same lines, DOACs elevate all three of these levels artificially. And so now that we've covered the syndromes with the highest thrombosis risk, what about the genetic mutation conditions starting with factor 5 Leiden? So for factor V Leiden diagnosis, this is a DNA test using PCR to detect the factor V R506Q mutation. This is autosomally dominant, so there will be a strong family history in that vignette. The mutation alters where protein C cleaves and inactivates factor V activity and causes activated protein C resistance. The treatment, if there's an asymptomatic heterozygous person, there is no need for anticoagulation. But if there is a DVT with homozygosity, they likely will need long-term anticoagulation. It's important to know the difference between heterozygous and homozygous, and we'll talk again about the implications of factor V Leiden in pregnancy in a minute. And so what about the prothrombin 20210 gene mutation? So checking for the prothrombin 20210 gene mutation utilizes PCRSA. This is a point mutation. It's also autosomally dominant and seen mostly in the Caucasian population. There's a second point mutation, arginine 596 lutamine, which is seen more commonly in the Japanese population and can also lead to increased procoagulant states. So they may give you that in your vignette as well. Asymptomatic heterozygous patients do not require anticoagulation, but those with a DVT and homozygosity did buy the long-term anticoagulation ticket. And then what about heterozygous factor V Leiden with heterozygous prothrombin gene mutations? 
I feel like this question definitely came up on our boards. And so when you have that heterozygous factor V Leiden plus the heterozygous prothrombin 20210, there is a similar risk of clotting as homozygous factor V Leiden. So they are at an increased risk. And if they do have a DVT with this um, gene mutation variability, they do most likely require a long-term anticoagulation. And on the topic of anticoagulation, because the boards love to give the scenario of any of these in the setting of pregnancy, what anticoagulants are safe in pregnancy? So this is going to start our little pregnancy segment to wrap up this episode. So heparin products generally are safe, and we avoid DOACs as well as warfarin in pregnant women. And then what are the general rules for a patient who is pregnant with a high-risk thrombophilia syndrome? So for patients who have a high-risk thrombophilia diagnosis, and so that's the antithrombin-3 deficiency, double heterozygote, so that's that prothrombin-20210 mutation with the factor V Leiden, or factor V Leiden homozygosity or homozygous prothrombin 20210 mutation who have a single prior episode of VTE or an affected first degree relative who have not received long-term anticoagulation. The general rules are antipartum prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin and postpartum prophylaxis with low molecular weight heparin for six weeks. Yes. And then depending on thrombophilia risk, if a woman is intended to have a C-section, make sure that you bridge with unfractionated heparin. And then how do you go about the management of a pregnant woman with antiphospholipid syndrome? For women who have laboratory criteria for antiphospholipids and greater than or equal to one fetal loss at 10 weeks of gestation, or who had the three unexplained consecutive spontaneous pregnancy losses less than 10 weeks of gestation, but no prior history of venous or arterial thrombosis, it is suggested to combine therapy with low-dose aspirin as well as prophylactic dose molecular weight heparin. For women who carry the diagnosis of antiphospholipid syndrome and have a prior history of arterial or venous thrombus, they're at high risk of recurrence and generally given indefinite warfarin. Warfarin is tetragenic and cannot be given during pregnancy like we just talked about. However, the patient should be then placed on low molecular weight heparin during the pregnancy and after the pregnancy has been completed, they can resume their warfarin in the postpartum setting. Anticoagulation can generally be resumed four to six hours after a vaginal delivery and six to 12 hours after a C-section. Heparin and warfarin are not contraindicated in breastfeeding women. Yeah, those are really high yield points to take away. And so overall, Sam, thank you for this episode. What are our key takeaways? So our key takeaways is to remember that the highest risks of VTEs are with the protein S, C, and antithrombin-3 deficiencies. We do not test while patients are in anticoagulation as they interfere with the results, and we need to be cognizant that most results require repeating to confirm the diagnosis. For the antiphospholipid syndrome, the diagnosis of criteria includes clotting and early pregnancy loss, as well as identifying the antibodies IgG or IgM for the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein, the anti 
lipin protein as well as the lupus anticoagulant. The treatment is warfarin. Antithrombin 3 deficiency, heterozygous as homozygous is incompatible with life, and you use long-term anticoagulation for unprovoked clots. Protein C and S deficiencies, you need to be aware that this is a vitamin K-dependent protein and they're natural anticoagulants. Levels will be low in the setting of acute clotting or if a patient's on warfarin. For factor 5 Leiden, it's diagnosed by that PCR testing looking at the factor 5 R506Q gene mutation, and they need longer anticoagulation if there's a homozygous patient with a VTE. Lastly, the prothrombin 20210 gene mutation is also detected by PCR. And if a patient is homozygous with a VTE, they need long-term anticoagulation. Thank you so much, Sam. And for all of you taking your heme and cores this week, good luck. We know it's a lot to take those on back-to-back days. It's truly a marathon of an exam, um, but you will all do great. And we're wishing you all luck in this week of exam. And as always, please feel free to reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or Twitter to Rock Docs.